The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sin of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for time again this week to gather around your scriptures. We pray that as we look at this passage, your son, the Lord Jesus, would be glorified, that you would be teaching us and shaping us by your Holy Spirit, that we may better bear his name. And we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the book of Nehemiah opens in Susa, which might be the most exotic place we go this year. The winter residence of Persian monarchs located in what today is Iran. This is not the first time in the unfolding story of the Bible that we have traveled to Susa. Nehemiah walks in the same streets. He frequents the same corridors of power in the Persian palace as Esther and Mordecai. In fact, not all that long has passed in terms of time since the current king's predecessor considered, at the behest of an advisor, wiping out the entire Jewish population in Persia. But, that was pers- but he was persuaded otherwise by um, that godly queen, Esther. That Nehemiah then is walking around Susa and bumping into his friend Hanani and fellow Jew, that is a testimony, even from the outset, to the faithfulness of God to his people in this time of crisis, and it is a crisis. Nehemiah and the people of Judah have been in exile now for many years. 
Jerusalem, their home city and the seat of their kings, was destroyed in around 586 BC, with the poor left behind in the city to dress the vines, keep the land. And those who weren't slaughtered were carted off into what then was Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, the beating heart of power in that new empire. But like all empires, Babylon fell. It was weighed, found wanting, and in swept Cyrus, the Persian conqueror, in 539 BC, bringing with him the Persian Empire, which is where we name Nehemiah. And by the time that we arrive in the text, Nehemiah, um, who I think we can reasonably assume was born in exile, is trotting, and by the time he's trotting around the palace in Susa, some of his fellow countrymen and women have been permitted by Cyrus to return back to Jerusalem. And along with them went Ezra, whose book precedes Nehemiah's, and Ezra was responsible for rebuilding or starting to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and also to rebuild the spiritual heart of God's people. And so I guess that having survived the risk of genocide, and what with some of his fellow Jews back in Judah, back in Jerusalem, Nehemiah, who had never once set foot in that great city, was perhaps really rooting for some good news from Hanani as they bumped into one another at the local market or whatever. Because here's someone who's actually been to the promised land, who's actually seen the city of David. Perhaps Nehemiah had heard news of Ezra's building project and his plans to recommit God's people to him and was hoping for some exciting progress. But sadly, the book opens with Nehemiah not receiving good news, but more of the same. The wall is still broken. The gates are still destroyed by fire. And as for the people, great trouble and shame surrounds them. They're no further forward. And so it is that Nehemiah weeps and mourns and fasts and prays, verse 4. And that prayer, that great intercession of Nehemiah, is what forms the bulk of this first chapter of his book. And it's the words of that prayer which demonstrate to us that even in this time of perpetual crisis for God's people, his plans for them remain unchanged. His remembrance of them remains the same. God's people and his plan for them are never forgotten, never forgotten. And it's why Nehemiah then prays as he does. And that forms the first area I'd like for us to kind of look at this morning, the sort of big picture stuff this wonderful picture of covenant and salvation. And if that's the kind of major heading, the finer details of the picture reveal to us a humble servant, Nehemiah, that humble servant of God whose daily devotion and ordinary discipleship show us something of the beauty of ordinary obedience to God in extraordinary times. And so we have firstly then salvation and covenant, God's people and his plan for them are never forgotten. Nehemiah's prayer is full of the language of covenant. In particular, he recalls God's covenant promise to be steadfastly committed to his people, as he had pledged to do at Mount Sinai many years before, where God declared that Israel was to be a treasure possession, 
a, a holy people, a kingdom of priests, holy nation. Now, if we take that big headline and then we zoom back from Mount Sinai into Nehemiah in Susa, we may wonder why he bothers to recall the language of covenant at all. It's a bit surreal because everything about Nehemiah's current circumstances would appear to suggest that, well, the covenant is a bit weak. Certainly can't have felt for Nehemiah that he was part of a holy nation. Certainly can't have felt that he was one of a kingdom of priests. In fact, I'm quite sure in exile that Nehemiah could be forgiven for feeling anything but a treasure possession in the hands of his God. He was closer to a disposable commodity in the hands of a Persian emperor. And all in all then, it didn't look very redeemed, it didn't look very gathered in, nor as though Nehemiah, along with the rest of the Jews, were in receipt of that steadfast, consistent love of God. And that was, after all, what God had promised. That's the language that Nehemiah is using. So why use it? I think what's striking is that Nehemiah is clearly a man who knows his scriptures. He knew his Torah really well because his prayer is saturated in the covenant language of Deuteronomy. Nehemiah knows that he is coming in prayer before the throne of a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That's what he says in verse 5. And Nehemiah knows, as he knows his Torah, that every covenant has a mighty party here, the Lord, and the dependent party, the people of Israel. That's how covenants work. And every covenant cuts two ways. And that brings us to the heart of the matter. Verse 5 is a wonderfully abridged version of the many verses in Deuteronomy setting out the obligations on God's people to honour God's ways. In short, God keeps covenant with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. And so far as that last criteria is concerned, there is every reason for the Lord to want to have nothing to do with Nehemiah, with Nehemiah's people, with the whole sorry lot, because verse 6, of the sin of God's people, and because Nehemiah isn't so pig-headed to assume that he's any different, because of Nehemiah's own sin. He sets it out more clearly in, in verse 7. He writes, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. And so the walls of Jerusalem lie in ruins, not because of the unfaithfulness of God, indeed that they lie in ruins at all is a sign of God's faithfulness. It's exactly what he said he would do if God's people continued to rebel against him. Those were the terms of the covenant that he made with them. No, the walls of Jerusalem lie in ruins because God's people have not loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's why Nehemiah weeps and mourns and wrestles in prayer in verse 4. Charred gates, broken walls, they were a public display of the fact that the sin of God's people has led to their disgrace, that they, not God, has broken covenant, has broken promises with him. Every book that precedes Nehemiah, indeed every chapter of the Bible and human history since, 
has been a sorry record of just that, the fickle and loveless way in which men and women have treated God. But you've got to notice too that that's, that's not where the prayer stops. It doesn't stop at the end of, of verse 7. Sometimes that's where our teaching stops or preaching stops. I think it's where the devil would be delighted for us to stop. It's not where the chapter goes though. It's not where the rest of the Bible goes either. The whole notion of a covenant between an almighty God who created heaven and earth and a weak sinful people is an act of grace. What Nehemiah means when he talks of a covenant and of steadfast love from God is that God's commitment to those who love him cannot be broken. From Sinai, where the covenant was made, to Susa, where Nehemiah lived, from Edinburgh all the way through to eternity, it can't change. Moses, Nehemiah, us, all the same. That's the beautiful nature of covenant grace. Verse 7, that's true. It's true for them. It's true for us. But as the story of this book unfolds, as Nehemiah is used not only to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to put in the new gates, but also to restore the spiritual foundations of God's people, we see that sin never has the final word for those who love the Lord. Sin never has the final word. And for Nehemiah, who has been told that his city, decades after its destruction, still lies in ruins, that is good news. He must have felt completely awful. He had every right to feel totally awful. But feelings do not dictate the security of God's covenant to those who love him. Nehemiah's circumstances don't dictate the promises of God, nor God's commitment to keeping them. God has not forgotten his people. That's why Nehemiah prays as he does. And that's so radically different in many ways from the narrative that flows from our own culture, where love is what you make it, love is what suits you, love is what I want, love is wrapped up with feelings and is separated often from any sense of radical, steadfast commitment. Well, I'm quite certain that Nehemiah knew exactly what sort of covenant steadfast love would sustain him. And I'm sure that I know what love will sustain me when I cannot make sense like Nehemiah, of the world around me. Or when, like Nehemiah, the word of God, even his promises, strip me bare and expose my sin to the very heart. Well, what's going to sustain me then? It's not a rainbow sticker on my flat white. That's not going to do it. Only the steadfast love, true love, from the God of heaven, that will do it. Now, not only is this the covenantal God of steadfast, committed love, Nehemiah also addresses God as, in verse 5, great and awesome. And that's truly striking. Each time Nehemiah tasted wine for the king in his role as cupbearer, he's being reminded of his place. He may have been trusted. He may have been in close proximity to the king, indeed, at every meal, holding the Malbec and the rest of the wine list. He may even have had the king's confidence, but we can be sure that Nehemiah was really no more than a disposable slave. He was there to make sure the king didn't get poisoned. 
If Nehemiah fell to the floor, having tasted a poison sip of Pinot, then that's fine. The next slave was standing in the wings. Not only that, Nehemiah lived in this pagan palace in Susa, which was, as the archaeology tells us, surrounded with and constructed with all the materials of the areas conquested by ancient Persia. Each item of the design, each bit of it, each brick, each detail there to serve as a reminder to those looking in that the ultimate power doesn't lie with their gods or their rulers, many of whom were now dead. The ultimate power, power lies with the king of Persia, the emperor. That's the ultimate power, and yet, and yet it's not to Artaxerxes that Nehemiah turns, is it? Not to the ruler, not to Persia, but to the great and awesome God, to the Lord. Why? Because only he is just that. Only he is great and awesome. That's the wonderful big picture material. Nehemiah knows that this pagan king he serves in whose hand his life rests, that's going to fade to nothingness, swallowed up by the next empire. The Lord will tolerate no rivals, no Nebuchadnezzars, no Belteshazzars, no Cyruses, no Artaxerxeses, because the Lord is the ultimate authority sitting above even this great king that Nehemiah works for. The Lord may have permitted and used Babylon, and he did. He may permit and use Persia, and he did. He may permit today a White House, a Chinese Communist Party, or even a Holyrood. But make no mistake, he alone remains the great and awesome God. He alone is the ultimate power, and everything else sits underneath him. Everything else is penultimate. And so, when the walls of Jerusalem still lie as rubble, when God's people are still riddled with sin, Nehemiah remembers the true nature of who God is, great and awesome. This is the kind of God who doesn't just make covenantal promises. This is the kind of God who has power to keep them, power to follow them through. And so the kind of God who will, in verse 9, gather his people back in, his power to do that, who will, verse 10, redeem them and bring them home, even from the furthermost part of the globe. Not only can God keep covenant, he is able to work out the promises of the covenant because he is great and awesome. I just want to draw out two final things from this intercessory prayer of Nehemiah. Nehemiah would have been surrounded each day, not just by all that glamorous architecture, but also by a plethora of gods, Persian and otherwise. The Persian emperors were great fans of tapping into the spiritual power and domain of every nation, every land and people that they conquered in the hope that they'd curry their favor. And so as Nehemiah walked around the streets of Susa and in, and in the palace, he would see gods and images of them that had ostensibly given the Persian king his power, but who in reality had the same attentiveness and auditory capacity as a wooden spoon. And that is essentially, after all, what Isaiah says, isn't it, in the Old Testament as he addresses the people of Israel? Well, you've made it with your own hands. What's it going to do? Nothing. Waste of time. Right for the fire. Certainly can't speak, listen, hear, or help. 
How different then is the God of the Bible, who twice over Nehemiah in this prayer describes as the God who is listening at the start and seeing, and the same at the end, listening and seeing, attentive to the prayer of your servant. Listen to me, because he can. Not blind, not deaf. And that's as true today. I remember this one time when I was on a tour in Bangkok, standing somewhat sweaty and soggy, but looking out on hundreds of people flocking to one of the many golden Buddhas in the city and offering to them and bowing down before them and crying out to them. I was struck by the power that they had, and there is a real spiritual power there, isn't there, to draw so many near. But what power they lacked to listen or see or do anything really about the brokenness of those who are crying out for help. Here's the God who listens and sees, who's great and awesome, who keeps his promises. And finally, notice how Nehemiah prays as someone who has a security of a salvation story, who rests in this covenant relationship. Nehemiah's worldview is shaped by scripture. That's what explains it. That what's, that's what makes sense of his current experience and what's going to happen next. He understands that what he has learned of God in the Torah is not simply history recorded for the sake of history, but it is instead a historical God-given meta-narrative. Here's the plan. Here's a story you're part of. Here's where it's going. It's moving towards redemption. That's what he's praying for. And Nehemiah appears to know how he fits in with that plan and how his world makes sense in the light of it. It gives him hope for himself and for his people. It gives him hope for the day ahead. That's how the prayer ends. Give success, he says, to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Here's somebody who's getting ready to go out the door for work, grabbing his coffee. It's because God's story, that unfolding meta-narrative of redemption, because it makes sense of Nehemiah's big picture, that it also gives dignity and purpose to the daily grind of serving in the king's court each day. Now, meta-narratives are out. They're not fashionable anymore. They're about as on trend as Pete Dixon's Crocs. We don't need big stories any longer. We make our own sense, we grow and cultivate our own truth in the greenhouses of our minds, or we find it in particular aspects of our lives, in our work, in our family, in our leisure, politics, our identity politics, whatever. But how miserable that has made all of us, and how confused, particularly men and young men. Because in the cold light of day, indeed in the cold light of COVID, many of the usual structures around us have been stripped away. And they're showed for what they are, relatively meaningless, powerless. Don't make sense of the world in which we live. Work can't do that, politics can't do that. But Nehemiah, well, he was spared that confusion because he knew whose meta-narrative he stood in. And it's a good one. Gave him hope and certainty. Now, if that's all the big picture stuff, we ought to look a little bit at the detail. 
And for that, we just need to take a glimpse at the man Nehemiah himself, which brings us to the kind of second heading, devotion and discipleship. Nehemiah is, for the most part, just an ordinary man with no status afforded to him other than that given him by the ruling power. Now, in the scheme of the king's servants, his position is important for sure. But as I've mentioned already, the architecture surrounding him, the language that was spoken commonly, the politics, the culture, all served to demonstrate that Nehemiah was a long way from Judah and a long way from Jerusalem. He's by no means a free man. He's trapped. Yet even in the context of exile and slavery, Nehemiah remains rooted in the rich culture of God's word. His prayer as a whole is evidence of a heritage, a family, a community that has passed on and taught God's promises. Somehow, a godly remnant remains years later, miles away from Judah, among God's people. And what a wonderful thing God is about to do with that heritage, with that teaching that sits underneath that prayer through Nehemiah. His name may be stamped on the book, but behind him are who knows how many brothers and sisters in the Lord, how many lunches, how many Sunday club lessons, how many small group Bible studies, how many quiet times. And that's all brought him to a place when we're faced with crisis, when Hanani delivers him that news, that blow, when faced with that, Nehemiah is able to make sense of that. He's able to fall down in rich prayer. The teaching Nehemiah has received has helped him to retain godly perspective, which is no easy thing in a culture steeped in idolatry. It helps Nehemiah get up, go to work, retain his convictions. He keeps the promises of God to hand. He knows what God requires of him because he knows his Torah. We see that so clearly in the rest of the book, in particular chapter 5. A heritage of godly teaching behind this one guy. Secondly, I think it's worth touching on, just lightly, um, that Nehemiah is, is a cupbearer. He's not a cleric, he's not a priest, pastor, elder, minister or deacon. He's probably not even done the Cornhill training course. He's, he's just a man, he's just a man who loves Jesus, who loves God and whose heart breaks for the things of God. And who, it seems, in the space between chapters one and two, there's a passage of time between these two chapters, simply got on, still goes to work, still bears the cup, still changes the wine list. He serves in the king's court, that ordinary life, that daily grind used by God in Nehemiah's life, ordinary life, daily grind, the Lord uses all of that in our lives too, whether it's tearing our hair out in the 50-second Zoom call of the day, trying to work out why Microsoft Teams won't refresh, won't load, and trying to figure out which colleague to call on Outlook, even though you don't know most of them. The Lord is there, bothered with, using, interested in all of that. 
Finally, circumstances here as Nehemiah receives that news at the start of this book, they, they've driven Nehemiah to prayer where circumstances could perhaps reasonably have given Nehemiah to do anything but pray. I've said this already, but I do think it's worth repeating. Um, Nehemiah's feelings and our feelings never dictate what is true. Feelings tend to lie sometimes. And our feelings do not and cannot change the covenantal promises of God. Can't. God will bring those who turn back to him home to him. He'll bring those who turn back to him home to him. And so that's why Nehemiah prays. And God will grant us mercy. He will grant Nehemiah mercy as he asks for, because well, God has plenty mercy to give. It's limitless. Huge storehouses. And that's why Nehemiah asks for it. A humble praying cupbearer, gripped by the covenant, as he sits on the cusp of another day of servitude in Susa, and what God can do with a cupbearer on his knees is quite remarkable as the book unfolds. It's almost as surprising as what God can do with a builder's boy from Nazareth many years later. And so it is that the seeing, hearing, great and awesome God's commitment to his people, it can't be shaken. That's good news at the start of this book. God's people and his plan for them are never forgotten. Never, not once. And God delights in the daily walk of his people in their ordinary lives. It's special to him. I hope that's a fair sketch in the opening moments of this book. As God continues to work out his salvation purposes for his people. This time through his servant, Nehemiah. A humble cupbearer who knew the promises of God and claimed them. I'm going to pray uh, as we close this section of our time together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you afresh just now for the wonderful joy of being part of your covenant promises. We thank you for that big picture truth of your steadfast love and your commitment to us, even when our commitment to you is fleeting and fickle. We thank you, Lord, that each time we turn back, you welcome us with open arms, that you never forget your covenant or your promises to us. Father, we thank you too that each aspect and detail of our lives is known by you and valued by you. Whether we are stressed or worn out, whether we're close to tears or laughing with joy, we give thanks that our feelings and our circumstances do not dictate your character or nature, which is unchanging and constant. Help us to remember that, we pray, particularly as we stand on the edge of a new week. Help us to keep looking to you, 
And we ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.